This is Top Floor, episode 84. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 84. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Kate Jerkins is a spirits company leader with a hotel past. A native of Northern California wine country, Kate honed her Chardonnay drinking and leadership skills as a sales and marketing executive for companies like Core, Viceroy, and W. When past hotel colleague Fawn Weaver reached out about a top secret whiskey project, Kate put down her wine goblet and picked up an old-fashioned glass. As chief business officer at Uncle Nearest, Kate handles all areas of sales, marketing, and distribution for the brand and has made it the fastest growing American whiskey in US history, racking up more than 550 awards and accolades along the way. Today, Kate and I are going to talk about booze, bosses, and Black history. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and random strangers who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Ilana. Ilana wants to know, what is the difference between a sipping spirit or whiskey and a mixing whiskey. And this question is so important to me because this comes up with my husband all the time. Kate, what do you think? What's the difference between sipping and mixing? Wow. Well, we always say at Uncle Nearest is actually you drink your whiskey the way you want to drink it. <laughs> I agree. Growing up, like growing up, my dad would have said you would never mix a soda with a good whiskey or a scotch. But I don't agree. It really is about how you want to drink it. Now, if you've got a really high proof special single barrel that's several hundred dollars coming through, I would sip it. I wouldn't mix it because you're going to miss out on all the nuance and all the fun of it. But I think every day it's it's just definitely your your call. I love an old fashioned personally, and I love it as a highball. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear that because. I love classic cocktails, but I am very often admonished not to use the good stuff in them. And it makes me furious. So good to know. I'm going to play this back as my evidence. (laughs) Your pre-Uncle Nearest career path is strangely similar to mine. You started in food and beverage, then moved over to hotels. And like me, you have a liberal arts degree. Yours is in history, mine's in English, but essentially that's the same thing. How much of your career unfolded by design? And how much of it was sort of a function of letting it go where it took you, just sort of following the opportunity? Great question. So when I went on my first date with my husband, he had a little card in his car. And the card read, luck is a residue of design. So it's always like resonated for me because I feel like I've been incredibly lucky with the opportunities I've been given. So I think there is some design there. I will say I always thought I wanted to be kind of an event planner 
and you know, like, and I'm a big organizer and that kind of stuff. So that's why I started out in food and beverage. And by making that decision, I met my first hospitality mentor who said, you're great at what you do, love what you're doing. I think you should work in hotels. And there we go. And by, you know, my, the first hotel I worked at was this little hotel about two blocks from my house, fell in love with that company, which was the original Viceroy Hotel Group used to be called Core, but it's Viceroy Hotel Group now. And I just fell in love with the business and everything went from there. I happened to have met Fawn during my uh, tenure there. We have another eerie similarity, which is like me, you grew up with parents that were educators. Right. Did your parents' jobs have any influence on your career? Was it in reaction to their jobs or just sort of random? It was random. But I would say like my parents, if they could tell you today, would say, I'd always been like a little planner. You know, I used to... Like when I was five and six years old, I'd have my clipboard out a month before my birthday, wanting to plan my birthday oh, and plan wow. things. So I was just always really into that. I always admired the work that they both did. Um, and my brother went into finance and I went into this world. And we always joked, we're like, we were, where, where did we lose like the good genes <laughs> you know, in terms of doing well? But both of us are really, we're always and have been inspired by the work they did giving back. So, um, but yeah, nothing was in spite of it, just wasn't something. Um, that really called me. And I spend time in my children's classrooms all the time. And they are special people, teachers and educators. (laughs) (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. My sister and I both ended up in hospitality. She's a restaurant owner and a real estate investor. And of course, I had a hotel career and now I do consulting. And we think that it's because even though our parents were teachers... They were partiers. They were big entertainers. <laughs> and so okay. we learned, we think we learned about hospitality. I mean, we know we learned about hospitality from them. I don't know awesome. if that makes sense. Come to think of it, my parents had some pretty good parties in their days. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, that's, that tracks. <laughs> so it's impossible to talk about the company, Uncle Nearest, without talking about the man, Nathan, Uncle Nearest Green. Who was he? Who was Uncle Nearest? Yeah, so Uncle Nearest, Nearest Green, is the first known African-American master stiller on record. And he was in, in the 1800s, In uh, he was an enslaved man working on a farm in Tennessee. And he was known far and wide as the best whiskey maker in the area. And what distinguishes whiskey from everybody else is that he was using a technique filtering the whiskey, the distillate, through charcoal. And the charcoal was from sugar maple trees. So you chop down those trees, you burn them, you create charcoal. And then the distillate, so as it was coming off the the still, was being filtered through this sugar maple charcoal, which is a process that takes 10 to 14 days, and then being put in a barrel. That particular process came all the way from West Africa. We know Nearest is not the only one using that method. It just so happens that he was known for it in the area. Um, And so also with the sugar maple trees, you you got a little hint of that sweet as well. So an enslaved man working on this farm, and over the course of time, he was introduced to a young boy who was also working on that farm. This was a young white boy who had been doing chores on the farm, and uh, the person who owned the farm, Dan Call, asked Nearest to teach this young boy everything he knew, and said to this young boy, "This is Nearest Green, he, uh, Uncle Nearest. He he he's the best whiskey maker I know of." So the two created this bond, this mentor mentee relationship. Um, the young boy was now, you know, a younger man. He would he ended up selling whiskey to soldiers during the Civil War. He was a slight man, about five foot one, 
figured he looked like enough like a kid. No one would hurt him, but there was a shoot to kill order for people selling liquor to soldiers. And really? You don't, really want, you don't want your soldiers all liquored up. So it was definitely not, it was definitely against the law. I guess um, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, um, I would think you'd want them to be like a little bit happy and a little numb and who knows, but, but not. Um, <laughs> so after the civil war, the, the person who owned the farm, Dan call was a preacher and it, it was decided he needed to get rid of this still and his distillery on the farm. And so he, um, he sold it to this young boy it's post civil war. So Nearest is now a free man, but the young boy hired him as his first master distiller and was paying him and paying his boys as well to make whiskey. Um, and one of the bottles I have behind me says 1884 on it. And that is the year we believe Nearest retired. It's the last year we believe he put whiskey in a barrel. And when he did that, the young boy, who's now a man, moved from his distillery site there to a new place in Lynchburg, Tennessee, just down the road. And, his, and Nearest's sons went with him. So nearest, you know, story got lost in time. This young man ended up being the namesake of a great American brand, otherwise known as Jack Daniels Whiskey. Oh, wow. I have heard that story before. And yet I still just got full body chills when you told me that. It's an amazing story. And I don't tell it as well as Jeffrey Wright, who actually um, does a 10 minute short film on our website. So I definitely, it's like butter hearing it from him. And he's so good at it. But yeah, so nearest is the godfather of Tennessee whiskey. So Years ago, um, Brown Foreman, who owns Jack Daniels, actually lobbied to have Tennessee whiskey become its own category. And so when you look at Tennessee whiskey, it has it follows all of the rules of a bourbon, except you must take it through that extra filtration process and it needs to be made in Tennessee. Um, and so without Nearest, that does not exist. That category on its own is not a category on its own without Nearest contribution. And our founder discovered that story and here we are today. Wow. So as I understand it, the founder, Fawn Weaver, read about this in the New York Times maybe circa 2016 Mm -hmm. and had the idea to create the brand. She started the whiskey company and she asked you to be part of it, but it was like this highly confidential, top secret launch project. How did you guys know each other and why did she pick you? Um, so we met at the Viceroy in our 20s. She was um, like an events producer was the title we had back then. So selling really high-end special events. And I was a sales manager handling corporate and group business. <laughs> like, you know, um, and we just got to know each other through that. Um, and then she and I moved along in our careers in different paths and reconnected in 2015. I was um, the director of sales and marketing at the SLS in Beverly Hills at the time. And she called me. She had something else she had invested in and was like, look, this is what I'm doing. The company I was really familiar with, it's not hospitality. It was not, it was all fitness related. And she's like, this is what I'm doing. Like, would you, you know, what do you think about joining? And so we went back and forth and I ended up leaving hospitality. That was my, my exit. Um, I was an acting sales and marketing VP for this company. And during that time is when she discovered the story of Nearest in the New York Times and started doing her research. Now, her original intention wasn't to start a whiskey company. She's a New York Times bestselling author and all those good, like amazing entrepreneur. And so she was going to write a story, um, start a foundation. All of these things are still happening. But when she gathered as many of uh, Nearest descendants as she could, she said, these are all the things. And it was a long list of things she was going to do. And they said, oh, what about putting his name on a bottle? And so by the end of 2016, so I joined her, I believe, December 2016, and then we launched July 2017. 
You all have said before that if Nearest Green had made blue jeans or made coffee, you would be a blue jeans or a coffee company. Absolutely. It strikes me that I think you're just really in the legacy business and the way that you sell and share that legacy is through the whiskey. Can you talk a little bit about the larger mission of Uncle Nearest? You started to allude to it a little bit, but are there things about our current sort of political and social climate that hurt or help or inspire the brand and the larger mission of what you're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is a legacy building business. We talk about that every single day. Um, with so there's a foundation, the Nearest Green Foundation, which is partially funded by sales of our whiskey. That foundation right now is sending any Green family descendants, and Fawn has spent hours and hours and hired many researchers and gathered this gigantic family tree of Green descendants. Through the foundation, they are entitled to four-year university, master's program, PhD, what? and then you know, and and all their all the expenses with a commitment that you need to maintain a 3.0 and you know do this with excellence. And so the thought process and the reason behind that is because all of these people, many of them didn't know their ancestor's contribution and who he was and his story was lost in time. And so she was able to tell all of these people, like, look at the greatness, look at this legacy you've come from, like, continue on with it. And so it's this incredible gift that's a big part of our ethos and who we are. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why people are drawn to our story. Um, honoring the first known African-American master distiller, there's not been any other spirits friend that's ever really honored an African-American prior to us. Being led by an African-American woman, our master blender is nearest great-great-granddaughter and also an African-American woman who retired from her career and then started as our master blender. So there's just all these amazing pieces. And, you know, we launched at an interesting time in our country. Yeah, I think that our, I think our story brings a lot of hope. Um, if you think about a white man and a black man, this mentor, mentee, post-Civil War, paying him as he would have paid any white man in the deep South in the 1800s, man, if they could do it, why can't we all? It's a really good point. I think one of the surprising parts of the story of Uncle Nearest as a company is how closely you have partnered with Jack Daniels. Can you talk a little bit about the Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative and yeah. the Spirits on the Rise Summit that's coming up? Oh, oh my gosh, I'd love to. So this is one of like the great joys of, of what I do as well is the Near Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative is a three-pronged approach to diversifying this industry, which is traditionally very white, very white male. And so together, we pledged $5 million and we created three different prongs. The first one was um, a leadership apprentice program. So bringing in people of color, each of our companies and African-Americans, that we will put through a track of about 18 months of learning to get them to a place where they can be a visible leader coming out of that program. If you're a young African-American woman or man or any people of color looking at our industry and then looking at leadership, you're not really sure where you see yourself there because you don't see yourself there. So the more we can accelerate and get leaders of color into visible roles, the more that this industry is going to evolve. The second piece was our business incubation program. 
And that is taking um, an up and coming um, distillery or, you know, BIPOC entrepreneurs and helping them kind of go from A to H. I don't know, not all the way to the end, right? But uh-huh. it's like establishing like where they are in their world. How many cases, you know, we, we say you've got to, you know, been in business for a while, have sold 2000 cases on your own. So little things. So we know you're like in business and then helping them go to the next level. It just so happened that the first company we helped was Denord Craft Spirits. Now, Denord is owned by a man named Chris Montana, and he owned a distillery in the heart of Minneapolis. Now, during um, post the murder of George Floyd, during some of the uh, riots that that proceeded it, um, his distillery took on a lot of damage, and it felt a little bit almost like not recoverable. And so we really looked at him at first and offered, you know, extend our hand as part of the business incubation program. And um, they're doing incredibly well. And all the things that were part of that was really fun to watch. And then the third prong is this Nears Green School of Distilling, um, which is in the process of being established at Motlow State College in Tennessee. And that will be the first of its kind in that area for people to come in and actually get to get, go through a distillation program and hear from experts, both from, you know, from Jack Daniels, from nearest green distillery, from professors and other whiskey experts in the area. So we're really, really excited about that. And during a council meeting a little over a year ago, probably more than a year ago, we were kind of talking about how do we, how do we find more businesses and how do we let, you know, other people know about what we're doing? And so we ideated and we came up with Spirits on the Rise, which is happening in a few weeks. And it's a, it's a day and a half um, event where we've invited BIPOC entrepreneurs in the spirits business, along with um, pe- investors and people who are interested in investing in not just Black-owned spirits, but um, just you know, brand, like all different types of investor- investors and different um, types of folks in the finance industry. We have some distributors coming out, a few national accounts coming out, people from e-commerce, and just people in the industry where we're just going to basically spend a day and a half together, a lot of education, a lot of um, learning and ability for these brands to also show off a little bit and do a brand fair and really showcase what they're doing. Um, and our hope is that we're going to meet some incredible people, make some incredible connections, and just continue to make this a really safe and a space that continues to grow. I know this is the inaugural year for Spirits on the Rise. Do you anticipate it becoming an annual event or is it too soon to say? That would be our goal. Yeah. And based on the response... so. Just on Friday, we sold out. And so we completely... Well, we sold out based on the space we had. So we've had to completely pivot and uh, figure it out. But we figured it out. And so we've opened it back up. So we do feel like there's a lot of interest in this event. And we want to continue to watch it grow. Did you have to get out your meeting space diagram calculator <laughs> figure How out? Many How many classroom style? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. That's Something awesome. like that. <laughs> This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we come back, Kate and I are going to talk about blending whiskey and changing liquor laws. Be right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. 
Next year's conference will take place March 19th through 21st, 2024, and you can find more details at hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with some really specific and practical tips they can try in their businesses or in their lives. Something I want to know, which may not exactly be a tip, but it's a practical question. I don't understand the practical part of how the whiskey launched in 2017. So... I think I know this, that American whiskey has to age for like two, three, maybe four years. So how is it ready in time to launch in 2017? Great question. So yes, the Tennessee whiskey is a minimum two years. Um, But as most companies do, it is a practice. And in fact, there's companies in the US that just distill spirits that people buy from them. So like not all spirits brands are being made on their own. So we found an incredible source, sources actually, Um, that we purchased right off the bat, but we immediately started laying down our own barrels. So January, 2022, last year, we started bottling our own juice. So we've, it had, it had now aged an appropriate amount of time and we continue to lay down barrels every single month. But when we launched, we did launch, um, with a sourced product that then we put our own stamp on, we put it through an extra filtration process and did a few other things to it to really market as ours. Um, but yeah, that's a question that comes up all the time. And most companies, if they come out of the blue, it's mostly because they've got a great idea, but they don't want to wait for two to four years to make it happen. Got it. So the brand is sort of in the blend. Like I've definitely heard of wineries doing that, buying grapes from other vineyards, and then their yeah. piece is the blending part. So it sounds like that's exactly is that close to the exactly. same. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. So because neither you nor Fawn, I don't think anyone on your team had been in the spirits business before. I know you did things a lot differently than what sort of the industry norms were. One of those was that you rolled out Uncle Nearest to all 50 states in two years, which I understand is a very unheard of thing to do. Why is that contrary to the norm? Yeah, um, because... Normally, a brand that's new, they want to go into a few key markets, maybe a couple, like maybe one primary market and a couple secondary markets, and really feed it, see how it's doing, take temperature. Um, honestly, a lot of it's because of money. Like they just don't have the money to put behind the brand and put it everywhere. And so you sort of take your time, get, you know, and, and kind of, for lack of a better word, you like want to get it kind of on a roll and get some recognition, and then you start. To, to, to roll it out other places. It also helps when it comes to distributors. They kind of want to see a test. Like, how is it doing in these markets before they agree to take you on in other markets? We had lightning in a bottle, so it was different. It was a little bit easier. Not easy, but easier to, to figure out the distribution piece. And, you know, everybody was so interested in this the brand and wanted to support it that waiting longer than that would have been a disservice to the brand. Um, we're lucky enough that at the moment that we launched um, kind of e-commerce for spirits was evolving. And so we were able to pinpoint an an e-commerce partner pretty close to the beginning. So we were able to do some shipping while we continued to roll out the distribution. So that part helped. Um, But we are a three-tier system. So you still have to go through a distributor and all in the store and everything to make that happen. But that piece really helped us while we did that rollout in those two two years. To me, it felt slow, but I know that it's... (laughs) not something you would normally do. (laughs) So I know you've never done it the other way. So this may be a stupid question, but 
What do you think that you did differently from somebody who's doing what you said, like picking a primary market and a few secondary markets and seeing what how it goes? Um, we just, I think part of it is just having so much faith in the story and the brand and knowing that our CEO, our leader, it was would and would and will never let this brand fail. So we had all the confidence of the world to to roll it out there. Um, and then we were able to start to add to our team and, and pinpoint people that um, in the industry that we felt could really support us on the ground. And so we did that in, in a really calculated way that really, really helped. And there was just no option to fail. It was really about staying true to our goal, which was to continue to build the legacy of Nearest Green. What's your favorite way to drink Uncle Nearest? I'm really on an old-fashioned kick right now. We are in the middle of this big old-fashioned challenge. So... Um, right now through January through March for every old fashioned and uh, a restaurant of our cells on our behalf, we're donating a dollar to an HBCU fund that'll go to the top 58 HBCUs in the nation. And so I feel like I've been sampling old fashions like crazy lately. <laughs> um, so that would be probably right now, number one, but um, most of my team would tell you that I kind of inspired them on, with my, my highball kick. And I still do that. It's a good Friday afternoon sipper is just like a tall glass ice club soda and uncle nearest. And I like a slice of orange, like on the top with a little straw and it's just delicious. That sounds good. I have some uncle nearest in my cabinet, um, that I purchased for research purposes. So I may be trying that highball this evening. I I will let you know. Please do. (laughs) We have reached the fortune telling portion of the program. So now is when you get to look into your crystal ball, predict the future, maybe wave a magic wand or two. What is a prediction that you have about the future of the spirits business? I think you're going to see brands like ours, like, premium whiskeys, premium tequilas continuing to um, really ascend. And I think we are going to start seeing a diversity of faces and um, people backing these brands, which is something that we've all been waiting for for a really long time. If you could wave your magic wand and change one thing about liquor laws, what would it be? Oh gosh, so many. (laughs) I would probably say, could we just have the same liquor law everywhere? Um, so all 50 states have a different law, um, a different way of selling. We have 17 states in the union where the states run liquor and control liquor. So you have to buy them through state-run stores. Um, like I just would say consistency. I would love to see there just be one consistent federal way. And um, on behalf of a lot of folks that I know who need this, especially in the more craft market, um, a more acceptable way to do sh- direct shipping of, of liquor to consumers because there are many distilleries that can't get a distributor or are not there yet. And they just don't have a way to get product into people that want to support them. So I would say that would be another piece. However, that's a very controversial view and I'm very happy to have my distributors, but I wish you could come up with a way for maybe smaller distilleries as they're starting out to be able to get product to end consumers. Right. Because how can they build a business if they can't build a business, if they can't make any money? Yeah. So what is next for you and what's next for your company? Yeah, you know, we are continuing to grow and evolve. Um, we have our venture fund. So we've um, our CEO has, has invested in some other brands, which has been really fun to just kind of watch them and see how they're growing. Um, for us, it's going to be continuing to really grow our presence in the United States. 
you know, I am immersed in it every day as is my team. And so I always get caught off guard with them. Like, oh, I don't know Uncle Nearest. And I'm like, oh, well, actually that's job security because we still have barely scratched the surface in what we're doing. So um, just continuing to really grow and seed our business in the United States and then really starting to explore what it looks like to go international. Um, you know, U.S. spirits do the... like The majority of our business is always going to come from the United States. So we really need to keep our focus on that. But there is a demand outside of the U.S. And so we've started seeding a few markets. Um, for, for, for me, for this brand, it's to continue to come up with innovative, fun, creative marketing and branding, and to continue to, to grow our whiskey family, which is, you know, both internal and external as well. Okay, folks, before we tell Kate goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best (laughs) stories get told. Going down. Kate, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Right. So I think we were talking earlier, it definitely would be a, back in the days, it would have been with a cigarette in my hand. <laughs> um, I was thinking back to like funny hotel stories and I feel a little stuck, but I will say, um, so I'll tell like a funny hotel story that's just more embarrassing than any, which is um, I like, I, you know, either celebrities and musicians and everything that stay in your hotel world, but it's the athletes that always kind of like perked me up like, who, oh, okay. And we had a we had a big NBA player staying with us who was a former UCLA Bruin, so I was even more excited. And I got I got word from the front desk that he'd been he'd been training that day and he'd sprained his ankle. And so I took it upon myself as the director of sales and marketing of the hotel to be his little nursemaid and go grab ice and bring it to him. <laughs> of course. Definitely not needed. Definitely not my job, but definitely excuse to make sure that I got to look him in the eye and ask him if he was feeling okay. That <laughs> is perfect. Sure he got his eyes. Years later, he was playing basketball at my kid's school and they all got his autograph. And I remember being like, God, I was so embarrassing. Years ago. Did you no. say anything like, hey, no. buddy, do you remember when I healed your sprained ankle remember for that you? bag of ice? Like, do you remember me? Yeah, it's like if I hadn't brought you that ice, would you still be in the NBA? We don't know. We I mean, know. <laughs> sounds like he owes you some residuals for sure. Saved him. Saved him. <laughs> Kate Jergens, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners are scrambling to make it to the liquor store and buy a bottle of Uncle Nearest. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a ton of fun. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 84. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 